Hello, welcome to the first in a four-part series of how to build an equitable planning framework. The intent of this podcast is really to help Greenprint partners understand how would I approach building out a framework that was equitable, holistic, and scalable for their practice. I'm excited about this work and to provide this in multiple mediums. If you're anything like me, you need to hear, see, feel, and touch the process and the project as it's developed. As such, in addition to these podcasts, I will be providing a process mapping that I did ahead of time, as well as a presentation the day of the interview. I'm really excited to collaborate on this work together, and I look forward in the next three segments to talking about what this process could look like for green print partners if you bring me on board. Hello, y'all, and welcome back. This is part two in the podcast, How to Build an Equitable Planning Framework. I'm excited to talk about this essentially three-pronged approach to positioning green print partners to be the go-to organization for equitable green infrastructure planning practices. Y'all have done some amazing work already, and I'm really excited to take that and build it out and build on it and scaffold in a way that reaches the right people in the right way and makes a lasting palpable impact on our built and social environments. So this first part, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the internal readiness component. Um, This shouldn't be thought of in isolation or as only the first step. Uh, Much of this podcast is gonna talk about the intersectionality and how we should be approaching this work simultaneously and concurrently um, with different tenets of it. Uh, As I've learned in my lived experience and my professional academic experience, When we approach racial equity work in a linear way, we miss out on the co-benefits of that process. Um, The process is probably the most important part to developing an equitable planning program. So as such, I wanna talk a little bit about what I see Greenprint partners doing in terms of building this out. And you all touched on this quite a bit in your draft um, documents that you sent me for review. So I wanna build on that a little bit Um, Conducting an organizational assessment um, is a great baseline. We really want to know where we as leadership stand, where our employees and staff stand, and where our our values lie um, so we can articulate that clearly. Um, Once that organizational assessment is um, completed, um, building in some checkpoints is incredibly important. Um, As we know in planning, the best laid plans Uh, don't lead to implementation fruition, and that is not a place that we want to end up in this work. And so building in clear checkpoints on understanding where staff and leadership are there in their racial equity work or equity in power or spatial equity work uh, is going to be incredibly important to one, see where they start, and two, see where that is built out. A few other things that we'll need to do in this space is create a common language and further a shared understanding. Um, These words have a lot of meaning and have been thrown around in different utilities, jurisdictions, organizations, and as such, they have a different uh, connotation for different people. What we need to do is make sure we have a common language that we're using, that we're all able to articulate, that each of our staff is able to articulate, 
And that will make for a smooth transition when we partner or uh, procure a project with a new utility or jurisdiction. The next thing we need to do is create a tool for staff prioritization and empowerment. So staff need to be able to recognize when a project is equitable versus inequitable. And what I mean by that is in the procurement process for a new contract or a new partnership, we need to be able to, any staff need to be able to go in and say, this project is going to further our equity goals in this way, or that is our hope they will. If we're not able to do that, and if any staff in the organization is not able to do that, we are not building an equitable planning framework. So I'm proposing that we develop a rubric and or a tool. Ideally, the way I approach things is I like to have an interactive modeling tool on a website where it's very clear to, and easy to put data into, criterion into, and understand whether what we're working on is going to further our equity goals. That is something that I think would be a high priority and something we need to start work on pretty soon after uh, coming on board. We also need to create a process where any external documents or frameworks are created with or uh, with and by impacted communities. Um, this is incredibly pivotal, I've learned in this work, as impacted communities are going to be the ones that see themselves or not see themselves reflected in the documents that we share. Was really excited to hear about the interviews conducted to help build some of this work and scaffold it from the foundation. Um, I didn't see where that was in the record. And so having a clear record of transparency and how documents change from green print partners and then teaching our partners that we partner with utilities or jurisdictions or organizations how to create those records of transparency and change is going to be absolutely key into building this equitable planning practice. There's a, a lot of things we need to do in this space. Um, one that may not jump to mind um, if people haven't been in the space a lot is how to talk to white people about equity and how to talk to black, brown, and indigenous people about equity. It is not the same conversation. And so having clear training and dialogue and again, that common language on what that looks, sounds, and feels like is gonna be incredibly important. What I've learned from lived experiences working with our historically black communities, a lot of times talking about green infrastructure, parks, open space, the, the question is when we're dealing with homelessness and crime and severe poverty and severe disinvestment, why should we be worried about green infrastructure? How is that equitable? And so that's something that we need to have some clear talking points on and some clear coaching and dialogue on with as an organization. In, in the other sense, we need to be able to talk to white people about this work. White people often are in the positions of power. Um, they benefit from the systems of inequities. And because of this, they have a different view and take on it. And what I've learned is if we don't have the right framing or language and how to talk to white people about this work, we're gonna lose them either as collaborators or people that wanna buy in, or they're gonna have them become detractors in the process. And that's something that we want to work to avoid at all cost. Uh, some of the other things that we wanna do in this space is we wanna make sure we move past the tools of the oppressor. Um, I see this organization already doing that with interviews and the oral narrative aspect of this work. Uh, I would take that a little bit further and ensure uh, the oral narrative component is, a, uh, is an integral part of every part of this process that we build this framework out. Uh, we should have some 
key mechanisms and ways for people to use their voice and engage in dialogue, both with the jurisdictions and utilities that we work with and with ourselves. Um, we need to be in that open line of communication as well. Um, I saw this organization do that in your or interviews and I was very excited about that. Um, and just and having an understanding and a, a recollection and an acknowledgement that data collection itself tends to favor the oppressor. And so moving away from traditional data collection methods and ensuring that we have varied and differentiated approaches to that data collection is going to be incredibly important in building out this equitable framework. A few other quick things before we wrap up this for, uh, this podcast for today is, you know, we need to uh, identify how to name those at the margins. Um, so we need to know who we are serving uh, and why. Um, and so one of the things that I've seen Greenprint do in their materials is understand that uh, low income and historically black communities um, are predominantly where many of their projects have been, and that is absolutely amazing. So if that's the the direction we decide to go as a leadership team, that's great. If we decide there's other um, indicators we want to use to to ensure that we're reaching those at the margins, that'd be absolutely pivotal too. Um, love to I would love to see this built out so that you know language justice and those who um, have different language needs, people with different ADA needs, um, and other communities are, are also included and are used as identifiers and making sure that we're reaching those at the margins. And to round out the internal readiness portion of how we build out this equitable framework, we really need to align any performance reviews with equitable planning work. Um, otherwise, equitable planning work becomes something that becomes a, a, a not a burden for staff, but it becomes this extra thing that they have to do instead of ingrained in everything they do. When you align your, um, and I've seen KPIs throughout your documents, which is absolutely great, but when you align your equitable planning work with your performance reviews, the two create this results-based accountability, which I'm a huge fan of, um, that really gets us to the outcomes we're seeking. And lastly, I would hope that we could, that I would seek to challenge some of the assumptions made by practitioners in both this field and this framework development. Um, I, I think we all know in this space that uh, there's a lot of historical practices and practitioners have used that um, lead us to some inequitable outcomes. And I want to make sure that we, as we build out this program, that we create a space where we can challenge the assumptions that come to these spaces, even in the engineering field. Uh, some of my lived experiences taught me that even uh, civil engineers and their best laid plans um, have still based things on past precedent instead of adapting and being amenable to changing uh, ways of doing work. So make sure we're challenging assumptions is absolutely pivotal as well. Uh, so this is uh, this was about internal readiness. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. I'm super excited to talk about the next two parts of what an equitable planning framework could be for green print partners. So please stay tuned. Hey friends, welcome back to part three of how to build an equitable planning practice. Uh, this is Alexander Cahill again. I'm excited to talk about this next section. Uh, again, we're working in tandem with the other two prongs of this work, and none of this should be thought of in a linear way. 
So as we go through expanding and developing an equitable planning practice, community centering as Greenprint Partners has identified in their framework is absolutely pivotal to a successful program. As such, there's a few key things I think we should be doing to expand this practice and ensure that we are holistic, equitable, and scalable in this work. I think one of the first things that I noticed that wasn't mentioned in some of the documents was uh, a developing a training program. Um, I've learned that education is absolutely key. It's kind of a cliche, but absolutely key to empowering um, historically marginalized communities. Um, but providing them training uh, on how to be involved in processes and how to understand green infrastructure is going to be absolutely pivotal. And so what I think we need to do is develop a training program for our partner jurisdictions, utilities, or practitioners on what community centering is and how it relates to green infrastructure development. What does that mean for them when they are implementing these training programs? How do they execute them? And how do they build capacity and coalition through these training programs? I think in tandem with that, we need to develop a grab and gold toolkit for practitioners, utilities, and jurisdictions on what community centering and or engagement uh, is and can be. We hear a lot about in, in, in planning spaces uh, and, and through equity spaces, um, community engagement and equitable engagement. And it's become this buzzword that's lost its, it's really lost its teeth, um, unfortunately. And so what we need to do is really develop this tool that helps our, our partners understand what it is and what it means, help them understand what it isn't, and then really make the, the distinction between engagement, community centering, um, and equity, and, and how those all come together. T to me, and, and the definition that I've used through my lived experience is that community engagement does not necessarily mean that the community's input is an integral centered part of the process. Uh, in my experience, community engagement is often taking traditional data collection methods or tools going to the community uh, and trying to get feedback or inputs to feed into an already existing project. We know that does not get to the best pro possible outcome or uh, product. We know that co-creation and co-authorship is a key way to keep community impacted communities engaged in this work uh, and to ensure sustainable um, and and and, and healthy outcomes for them. And so uh, developing this grab and cool tool kit for uh, practitioners uh, really is gonna be important to talk about that. And then also talk about community centering, which y'all hit on very well in your uh, framework development. Um, what I would add to that is we also need to help develop a, a training program on how to stipend, recruit, and empower community members in this space. Uh, Greenprint can't be everywhere all the time. Um, uh, that, that would be a, a great goal at some point. Um, and maybe that's way past uh, any of ours time. <laughs> um, but, uh, but being able to provide this training program and then stipend, recruit, and empower community members to be green space ambassadors, green space infrastructure experts, uh, and leaders in their community in this work will really help us um, be in these spaces, support in these spaces, um, and, and really help make positive, uh, substantive change in this work.
Some of the other things that we need to do in this community centering space is we need to develop a digital engagement tool or training to help support utilities doing engagement work. Um, and we need to be able to do this that supplements in-person dialogue. The, the time of only in-person uh, is gone in my personal um, experience and projections. And so we need to have tools that support each other both with in-person and virtual work. Um, they both need to have the same sorts of records of transparency. They need to have the same uh, uh, reduced uh, barriers to access and participation. Um, and so that's something that, that we should really think about when we build out this program is, is there a tool that we develop or a tool that we um, partner on that really helps us reach these people um, and be that support for uh, for our partner utilities and jurisdictions. Uh, I know with some of the smaller ones, they may not have the, the capacity to, to do this work um, and to procure these tools. And so it might be something that we take on um, as part of our contract with them. We also need to develop a tr training program on green infrastructure. Um, what is it? Why is it important? I think that this is a space that needs to be adaptable. Um, you know, green infrastructure, there are some some elements of it that have been um, used for you know hundreds of years uh, maybe with different names um, but there's some innovations that come out of green infrastructure in this space that have changed over time um, and that we need to make sure that we capture so we need a training program that really identifies what green inf infrastructure is and then leave space for that to be adaptable in that definition um, I remember when berms and swales were the were kind of the only ways that uh, 20 years ago one of my jurisdictions thought about green infrastructure, um, and there's clearly so much more to it than just berms and swales these days. Uh, but just hearing that evolution of how this infrastructure has changed and, and really gained traction, we need to have a training program that captures that. We also need to develop a language justice element. I mentioned this in the first part, um, but I wanted to reiterate this because the way we center community um, is important and the way we do that is through language. The, the language we use and in the language that we use uh, is gonna be key to um, procuring green infrastructure for our community, for implementing a green infrastructure program, for the maintenance of said infrastructure. Um, I would hope that one of the things that we'd be looking at is going into spaces where um, the predominant language is not English and that we are meeting people where they're at with their language uh, and providing materials in the language and or uh, if we are working with a partner jurisdiction, utility or organization, that they have the skills to be in that language justice space. Uh, part of this is, of course, providing materials in multiple languages, but not only that, it, it, it's um, having a clear access point to interpreter services, not just translator services. And it also means that we need to help these organizations understand that content needs to be ADA, WCAG accessible. And so part of this community centering is meeting people with low vision, audio, um, visual impairments, uh, any type of disability, uh, making sure that we are designing programs for these utilities that meet those residents and their needs. Without that, we are not able to center the community in this work. With that being said, 
I really want to uh, take a little bit of uh, just a moment to say I, I'm been very impressed in what I've read in the Greenprint Partners draft framework so far. Um, this community centering approach that you've done has been uh, absolutely uh, great to see. Um, it's nice to see a jurisdiction that's ahead of this work. I know we have a lot more work to do, but um, the starting point for y'all is much different than almost every other place. So that was really refreshing to see. I, I know it took our organization, uh, uh, well, much longer than I've been there to get there, but it just in the past uh, few years uh, for us to get to a point where uh, community-centeredness is really transparent. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to this uh, third part in the four-part series. Uh, the fourth and final part is coming soon. Have a great day. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the fourth and final part in a four-part series of how to build an equitable planning practice or framework. I'm incredibly excited to talk to you today about the third prong of this three-pronged approach to building this practice. Just as a reminder that this work should be done in tandem, it uh, can seem overwhelming and, and, and cumbersome to approach uh, equitable planning development um, comprehensively in such a way. However, in my lived and professional experience, I've discovered that unless you are tackling these things um, from this sort of three-pronged approach, uh, you don't get the same efficacy, um, you don't get the same scalability, and you lose out on that momentum from this work. So for this fourth part, I really want to talk about how we pivot ourselves into um, the market, the green infrastructure, the equitable green infrastructure market. What does that look like? How do we stay in it? And how do we expand in it? You know, we know that um, equitable planning practices take uh, money and investment and work. And so one of the things we need to do is ensure our, our financial solvency um, is sustained throughout this as we expand our operations, as we procure new contracts and partnerships. And so there's a couple of things that we think we need to do to build this equitable planning framework and stay uh, ahead of the market and in the market in these spaces. I think one of the first things we need to do is really foster relationships with professional networks. And what I mean by that is we need to be the first call um, or reference uh, whenever uh, a, a network member says, hey, you know, we're looking to do some green infrastructure or we're looking to do uh, some equity work in green infrastructure. How do we center the community and green infrastructure development? Um, that's one of the things that we really, really could benefit from in penetrating the market and staying relevant in the market. And so that may mean being uh, um, in constant conversation with, uh, you know, um, the green infrastructure institutes, with the American Planning Association, the American Society of Civil Engineers, the landscape architecture profession, and any other you know, sort of professional networks um, that, that, that talk about this work. Um, what, what we need them to do is uh, say, hey, Greenprint Partners has come up with this framework. They know what they're doing. We trust them. Uh, let's reference this utility jurisdiction or organization to them and create that partnership. So that's one of the first things we need to do. We also need to, in that same vein, uh, really work to build green infrastructure equity into kind of the professional certification standards for all these organizations. 
when it becomes a professional requirement or something that um, the average member has to repeatedly see, it becomes on their mind and it's something they start thinking about. It took us, it took us uh, many years to get the racial equity CM credit um, approved for the American Planning Association. Um, and that we were slightly behind the times with that. But now it's something that uh, every APA member has to see and go through. And it sparks conversations in their jurisdictions. Uh, it sparks conversations with community members. And so when we professionalize this into um, standards across the board, uh, that's something that lends itself to creating space for us to enter that market um, and really penetrate that market a little further. I think one of the other things we need to do is work with ASCE, if possible, to update green infrastructure practices. Um, one of the things that I have found and my colleagues across the country that I work with have found is that many of the civil engineering practices and standards um, really don't allow for truly innovative green stormwater infrastructure. And yes, some of that goes to you know ordinances, city codes, unified development ordinances that create barriers to this infrastructure development. Um, but some of it does go back to, uh, we hear from practitioners, we can't do this because it's not an ASCE requirement. Um, therefore, it doesn't allow us under our, you know, our engineering or professional engineering license. So we really need to make sure in that space when we're entering it, we are working in a space that's adaptable and malleable to what green infrastructure, infrastructure practices are and what they can be. That being said, we also need to conduct some outreach to environmental affairs boards, public works boards, stormwater utility and engineering boards. Um, we, we really need to make sure that we are, are visible. Um, when practitioners and utilities are in these spaces, um, then, then they will see, uh, they will see us and they will be able to, excuse me, <laughs> they will see us and be able to ask more questions, um, and hopefully lead to, uh, a request for an RFP, RFQ, uh, or even just a conversation and collaboration on what is green infrastructure and how does green print get involved. Couple other things we need to do in this space to make sure that we are penetrating the market and staying relevant in the market is we need to we need to partner with healthcare providers and institutions that have public health or community health grants and programs. Uh, I know that the project in Philadelphia is this great first start, and there's some discussions around maybe a project with John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, and that's super exciting. Um, that's something we really need to leverage. So we need to be staying in dialogue and conversation with um, organizations across the country, such as you know, Mayo Clinic, Healthy Estate, in, Healthy Estate Initiatives. Um, Wellmark's community programs is a really big one where they, uh, they really work to uh, increase people's health. Um, and Wellmark is, of course, across the country. Um, so that's something that we should look into. But in terms of this healthcare space, what we need to do is, is start relationships with each of these organizations 
really, really take ownership of this, be experts in our field like we already are, uh, and help them understand the benefits of partnering on a green infrastructure initiative. What does that do for their patients? What does that do for their potential patients? What does that do for people that um, aren't patients and they would like to um, you know, keep in the preventative space instead of the treatment space? So that's something that would be really important for us to look at as well. Uh, there's a lot we can do in these spaces. I'm super excited um, to talk about it more with y'all. Thank you for listening. If you made it through all four podcasts, uh, I commend you. Uh, it's a lot of me talking. Um, but if you're anything like me, you like to hear things in multiple ways or formats and mediums. Um, so again, think about this uh, kind of as a three-pronged approach, you know, thinking about what we need to do with our internal readiness, thinking about what we need to do in terms of community centering, and then really thinking about how we pivot ourselves in the market to remain sustainable um, and innovative uh, for the long term. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this uh, podcast series um, and to interview you. I look forward to meeting y'all um, virtually tomorrow. Thanks so much and have a great day.